When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Part of the game is failing, and you can get a stock pick wrong, whatever. That happens all the time, but I think you have to fail epically a few times at at this business. Um, You know, you have to really get hurt badly and, you know, question what your career looks like and why are you doing this thing you're doing, and then show up the next morning and lose another 5 or 10% over and over and over again. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Harris Kupperman, the founder and CIO of Praetorian Capital. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Harris. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Hey, Maggie. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So it is our tradition before we jump into the actual trades, uh, just to get a little bit of information about your background. So where did you grow up and what were the early years like for you? I grew up in Long Island. Um, my, my early years were in Long Island, I guess, which is probably the most boring place on earth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is it? <I> mean, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, my, my parents told me if I got myself into a good boarding school, they'd pay for it. And so I applied to every boarding school ever when I was uh, 14 because I wanted to leave Long Island. And I actually got into quite a few of them and I ended up going to Phillips Andover. Uh, you know, the happiest day was leaving Long Island. Uh, my, my parents are still there and about once a year I go say hi to them and it's nothing's changed. <laughs> Yeah, listen, like the suburbs aren't for everyone, right? And some people know that really early on and it takes other people a while to figure out that that's not really, you know, their spot. Yeah, I figured it out about when I was five. You know, my parents used to take me into the city, uh, you know, we'd go do stuff and I'd say, so why do we live here, not the city? (laughs) (laughs) So what was boarding, what was boarding school like? What was that experience like? Well, it was like, like you know, what's the saying? It, 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 out of the pot into the frying pan or something. Uh, I didn't really know what I was signing up for. And you, you end up with uh, a lot of structure, whereas my parents just kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do. Boarding school has rules. And, you know, you're not allowed out of the dorm after a certain hour and you have to sign in and sign out to everything. And there's like this imaginary line around campus where if, if you've left campus, uh, you know, you, you get demerits and you can't. You're kind of stuck on this, this this campus, which is fine because I mean, when you're on the campus, there's less rules, and you learn how to basically live your life and ignore the rules uh, and hope you don't get caught. <laughs> and so, by my senior year of high school, we, we knew all the tricks of all the rules. We had plenty of booze, and you know, we, we just did whatever the hell we wanted. Uh, I wasn't a very good student, so you, you could you could probably <laughs> tell that I didn't pay much attention to class. I just wanted to be a free spirit. Yeah, well, it's funny because you were good enough to get into all of them. So your so intelligence wasn't the problem. You just didn't like the sort of structure of of school. Was that it? I just didn't like school in general. Um, you know, when I went to college, uh, I got great grades, and it was a good deal. I went to uh, Tulane in New Orleans, and it was a good deal easier than Andover. Uh, but no, I just don't like the whole idea of studying and writing papers and showing up to class. It just never was my thing. I, I don't know. Some people just love it. You know, my dad became a doctor and 
he did, you know, like 15 years of college to become a doctor. And I was so happy to be done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's what makes the world, right? <laughs> yeah. So were you always interested in numbers or a math guy? Like how, how did you discover finance? I had been a decent math guy and, um, you know, all the rich kids who went to Phillips Andover, you know, they, they we, uh, I, I paid my way through uh, high school, often just like being a chess shark. I, I, would, I would play them all at lunchtime and, you know, $5 a game. And that, that's how I got my spending money. And so um, you know, that, that was pretty good until no one wanted to play me anymore. <laughs> and then um, uh, in 97, uh, when the financial markets crashed, I saw all these guys in suits running around looking like lunatics. And I, I I felt like this, I didn't know anything about the stock market, but I felt like it was very zero sum, like a game of chess. One guy wins, one guy loses. So I'm just thinking to myself, if all these uh, guys in suits that are corporate types are losing a bunch of money, and this is back when they had a, still had a stock exchange and you know a floor and everything, yeah. I, I figured there was some other guy who was taking all the money. And so I said, I said, why am I wasting my time with chess? Let's go uh, beat up these bigger guys. You know, like they, they, they have real money. And so I, I dedicated myself to learning how to. Uh, figure out how the stock market worked. And uh, I mean, chess, there's a ton of books written about it, but the books are pretty logical. Uh, when it comes to stocks, there's a ton of books written, but the vast majority of them tell you the exact wrong thing to do. <laughs> they tell you the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Uh, it, it's funny how many people have uh, been unsuccessful in finance who then write books that are bestsellers. <laughs> I mean, if, if you can't make money at this, why, why write a book? Um, and so it, it started a very long journey for me of uh, trying to figure out what works in stocks. And some stuff works and a lot of stuff doesn't. And then there's a lot of in between. Yeah. So, so but you feel like if you think the books are wrong, you feel like you've, you've figured out a pretty good handle on what's right? Well, like 25 years later, I'd like to think so. I mean, like all the stuff I have now came from the stock market. You know, it's kind of like this pinata that you wake up in the morning and bang over the head and like, you know, candy comes out. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, the pinata is empty and, you know, sometimes the pinata swallows you. But most of the time, like, you, you know, you need groceries, you go beat up the pinata. And so. Um, I'd like to think I figured it out now, but I don't. There's <laughs> a new surprise every day. I, I like to tell people that um, uh, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes at this, but I hope to make new and more creative mistakes over time, not not just repeat the same mistakes. So uh, I keep learning. Yeah, that's so funny because you know creativity and, and, a, and a willingness to sort of not only fail but kind of examine the failures is something that comes up again. And I, I guess you have to have that muscle, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna do this. Yeah, I think part of the game is failing. And you can get a stock pick wrong, whatever. That happens all the time. But I think you have to fail epically a few times at, the, at this business. Um, you know, you have to really get hurt badly and, you know, question what your career looks like and why are you doing this thing you're doing? And then show up the next morning and lose another 5 or 10% over and over and over again. You know, it, it's just part of the game. And it takes a lot of mental fortitude. I mean, in the end, uh, stocks are really, really easy. Buy good companies at a fair price and go to the beach and let some management team do all the work for you. And you focus on your surfing. Like stocks are super easy. It's just amazing that people can't uh, just do the easy thing because they either press too hard or they want to, you know, guess the market, second guess the market, triple guess the market. They have these wrong ideas in their head that there's too short term or there's, there's a billion of flaws you can have in, in this industry. And, it, it, you know, usually, you know, what, what sinks most people's leverage and all these things are solvable and logical. And 
just buy good companies and go to the beach. <laughs> but, but I guess that's why we have an industry. Let's talk about your first trade. And this is one of your failures, one of your worst trades. And that's investing in Mongolia and building Mongolia Growth Group starting in 2011. So set the scene for us first. Like what's happening in your life at this time? You know, where are you working? Are you working in finance? So at the time, I have a successful hedge fund and we had been investing all around the world. And a friend of mine asked me to go look at Mongolia. And in the summer of 2010, I went to Mongolia. It was booming. Uh, it was the fast growing economy in the world. We had a list of um, mega projects, as they called them. Uh, they were building the world's second largest copper mine, for instance. They were looking to build uh, one of the largest uh, coal uh, production and transshipment facilities globally. The, it was, it was a $6 billion economy, and they had like $60 billion of CapEx being built, and the economy was screaming out of control. Um, and you know, I, I saw what was happening there, and we looked at the stock market, which traded about $10,000 a day, and I, I opened a personal account and bought a couple shares, and I, I just couldn't put any money to work. It, it, like I, I gave one of those famous orders to the broker, uh, if it has a ticker symbol, buy it. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd wake up in the morning and we'd get, uh, you know, confirmations. I bought seven shares of this. I bought three shares of that. You know, it's like I spent $100 here and $12 there. And I asked the broker, what does this company do? And he goes, oh, it does something with cashmere. This one does something with sheep. You know, it's just, okay, <laughs> just keep buying. Just keep going. You know, I'll send more money when you finish the, the – but I, I realized that there was – the other liquid market in frontier markets is real estate. And so we, we launched an entity – uh, we raised uh, $51 million to invest in commercial real estate in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. Uh, we, we listed the company on uh, in, in Canada. It's still publicly traded. I'm, I'm the chairman and CEO of this. So this is all publicly known. And we went about buying uh, some of the best commercial real estate in Ulaanbaatar, the capital city. Uh, we put together uh, Mongolia's only institutional property management and brokerage, uh, Mongolia's only institutional property management team, that could do everything from leasing to brokerage to rent collection to maintenance. We uh, built the number two uh, broker of uh, sale lease transactions for third party. We, we did everything we told shareholders we would do. But, but unfortunately, it, it was pointless because um, a year after we started the company, they had an election. The, the wrong guys won. They banned foreign investment. They arrested all the foreigners. They stole everyone's assets. Um, it, they, they made the place miserable. It went from 16% GDP growth to three years later, the IMF had to bail them out after the old politicians had stolen everything that, uh, you know, moved. <laughs> and, you know, we, we survived as best we could. Uh, and, you know, I, I have a great team on the ground there that's, you know, really doing amazing work under impossible circumstances, but the economy continues to contract. It's, it's been a decade-long depression. Uh, the currency has lost you know, 70, 80% of its value. It's just been a truly, truly miserable experience. And uh, I don't wish that on anyone. Uh, but I think the, the real lesson for me is that, you know, people talk about illiquids in stocks. You know, I own 9.9% of a company and, you know, it's 100 trading days to get out of it. But, you know, you call up a broker and there's always a block available. There's always someone. You, you might not like the price, but there's always liquidity. When you own uh, commercial real estate and you have a team of 20 people on the ground and you're, you know, chairman and CEO, there is no liquidity. When you get a trade wrong, all you can do is put your head down and cut as many costs as you can and extend the, 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 the runway on the business and hope to come out the other end. You know, 
One day, I think Mongolia will be a successful country. Uh, I just don't know if that's in my lifetime. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, wow. I, but I hope whoever eventually inherits my shares will uh, inherit something of value because we have great assets in that country. But, but those assets are totally worthless right now. Was there any warning? Because anytime you're talking about, especially frontier markets, you know, the, that's the added part of the equation or the calculation is the, I don't know if you want to, political risk. Um, was that apparent at the time or did it look like they had really turned a corner and were just like on a completely different path before this regime came in? It, it looked like they had really turned a corner. Uh, I mean, the, the, the party that was in power was saying all the right things. They were Western educated, which isn't always the best thing. But these guys were doing the right things to grow the economy. There was a weird uh, political dispute between uh, the prime minister and the former president, who are the same party, and the ruling party ended up uh, fracturing. And the prime minister and the president decided to campaign against each other. <laughs> and the natural result is that six minority parties that no one in any way had any affiliation or love for all created an alliance and uh, very narrowly won the election. Uh, and you had parties that had absolutely nothing in common, that saw nothing similarly, and suddenly they had a ruling coalition. And then after they had a ruling coalition, they didn't really know what to do next, and they both basically squabbled with each other for four years, arrested each other, they changed the ministers every week. Uh, I mean, I think the only thing they agreed on was stealing stuff. <laughs> and mm. the, the, the net result was that the economy collapsed. Uh, and it's, you know, the ruling coalition uh, won in a landslide uh, four years later, like true landslide. But they haven't been able to pick up the pieces and get any momentum going, partly because commodity prices were weak in 2016 when they came back into power, and it's a commodity-driven country, but partly just because stuff happens. I don't know how to explain it. You know, some countries are massively successful and some aren't. And I thought this would be much more like Mexico with, you know, it goes forward a couple steps and backwards a step and then forward a couple more. <laughs> this one kind of set itself on fire. Yeah, it's been the sinkhole. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Did you, does that, did that turn you off of? doing any kind of emerging market or similar type investments? Like, did you, did you take that experience and really change the way you approach those kind of opportunities moving forward? Yeah, it, it has actually, because I think you can go far out on the risk curve and get, you know, commensurate upside. And you can do that in, you know, frontier markets. You can go just slightly out on the risk curve here in the U.S. and maybe you don't get as much upside, but you don't need to get 20, 50 times your money. If you make five times your money every couple of years, it, it's good enough and you have no downside or minimal downside. And so the risk reward equation is just better in these more developed markets. And I, I want to be clear, I haven't given up on Mongolia yet. I, I think it's going to work. I, I just, <laughs> I've been waiting 10 years and I might have to wait another couple more decades, but we still have our assets. We still have a great team and they're doing amazing work under impossible circumstances. So your second trade is another one of your worst, and this is investing in AIM is the ticker. How do you say the name in Canada in 2017? AMIA, AMIA, AMIA yeah. or AMIA? Um, it's yeah. funny. We owned the shares for a long time, and I still wasn't clear on how to pronounce it. 
Because you just have to say the ticker. <laughs> so so uh, what's happening here? So are you still running your hedge fund at this point? Is it under the same hedge fund that you buy these, that you get involved in this trade? I closed down the hedge fund to focus on uh, Mongolia. Uh, as the economy went uh, to hell in Mongolia, I just needed, I needed the full uh, focus to salvage the investment. Uh, so this is just my personal money. Uh, I bought shares of Amia. Amia has a number of loyalty programs, or it had a number of loyalty programs, including uh, Aeroplan, which is the Air Canada program. And Air Canada uh, uh, canceled their uh, loyalty program with Amia. And so the stock collapsed. It was in the high teens b- b- before. And it dropped all the way down to $2. And Is um, it an airline? No, no. It, it's, a, it's a loyalty plan. It, it, you oh, it, earn it, miles that, for spending. The company and, is the, oversees yes, the plan. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so they, uh, you know, the, the airline buys miles from them that they give to customers, and these guys then redeem the miles and process it. It's actually a really good business. Um, but the, the program was ending in, in three years. So they, they announced they were going to terminate the program, which normally would be a non-event, really. I mean, it's a, it's a very big piece of the business that's going away, but they had other businesses that were very valuable. So the stock should have dropped. We thought it was undervalued, and we bought a lot of shares. I mean, oh, me, I bought a lot of shares. And then... I came to realize the guys running it were like criminally insane. Uh, I, I'm not sure if they were just truly incompetent or if they were doing something blatantly illegal. But I, I've been investing for 25 years in lots of countries around the world. I, I've never seen a profitable division that was sold uh, and they paid over $100 million for Sainsbury to take a profitable div- division off their hands. It was a division that did about $40 million of EBITDA and a good chunk of cash flow, but they paid someone over $100 million to take it off their hands. Normally, you either shut down a money losing division that is profitable, or you you know get paid. Like they, they paid someone else to make it go away. Um, it just made me realize that you were dealing with criminals, and it, it's this very uh, unnerving experience because you know the stock's trading at two dollars, and you know before they did this illegal transaction, I thought it was worth maybe twenty, and after the transaction, I thought it was maybe worth fifteen. Like you have a stack of businesses, and I just realized that they were going to parcel out all the businesses to all their drinking buddies. And probably, you know, get kickbacks on the side. And I was going to be left with nothing. Uh, and I, I don't like being a victim, <laughs> but I didn't know what to do about it. Cause that, you know, when you have a hedge fund, you could go buy more shares. You could threaten to buy more shares. You, you have resources. You could spend legal fees. Uh, we put together, uh, you know, a coalition of the willing amongst some friends of mine that own shares. We had a, we had a conference call and I, I thought everyone would chip in. You know, I own X number of shares. I'll pay X percent of the legal bill, but everyone. You know, democracy doesn't really work in real time. Everyone said, oh, I'm a mutual fund. I'm not allowed to pay legal fees or I I don't agree with the lawyer we're using. And everyone had an opinion. I said, we're going to lose all this money if we keep arguing. And um, it it just realized that when you don't have enough capital, uh, you're going to be a victim sometimes and you can't solve your own problems. Eventually, uh, I realized there's an odd quirk of Canadian corporate law where if uh, board members don't get more than 50 percent of the votes at the shareholder meeting, uh, they uh, uh, have to resign. And so I launched a no-confidence campaign. It was a one-man political effort. I got the list off of Bloomberg, and I just started calling every shareholder I could find on the list. And, you know, guys, there's like, Cuppy, who, what? It's just hang up on me. <laughs> you know, but some guys would listen to me. They're like, yeah, these guys are scumbags. I agree. We're, you know, we're going to vote against them. And, I mean, think of it. A lot of shareholders don't vote, especially institutional ones, because it's too much effort, and it's like, you know, corporate governance and legal... But, you know, we ended up getting uh, two board members uh, fired. The CEO got kicked out. 
uh, <laughs> we, we won effectively, but, you know, they still had a bunch of corrupt board members. And, you know, it, it, it ended up that uh, some guys I didn't really know uh, signed a standstill that they ended up getting control of the board with the help of some other hedge funds. And they kicked out all the bad people and they, they salvaged the value. I mean, in the end, they sold uh, another really large division for, you know, 10 cents of the dollar, what it was worth, 20 cents of the dollar. But, you know, I, I paid two bucks. I sold mine at five. But it wasn't because uh, of my, you know, analytical brilliance or anything. It was, I relied on the kindness of strangers. And it just made me realize that if you're going to be an investor in markets, you could either invest in large cap companies where if you change your mind, you sell it the next day. Or if you get to you know, own uh, large positions that take a few weeks to sell, you, you better be able to have the, the strength uh, to, to fight back. And it was kind of the, the motivation for me to you know, launch a hedge fund just because I, I wanted more capital. I, I, don't, I don't ever be the victim again. And it was a real learning experience. I mean, I made money on the trade, but I didn't deserve to. I, I deserved to lose every cent. <laughs> so it's it's interesting because the two the two similarities in in these trades are um, sort of diligence in terms of who's running it, which which you presumably looked at though. You know, like you, you said earlier, it's stock. Look at the stock. Do they make money? Is it a good stock? But here it was sort of an unexpected turn in who was actually holding the reins of the company, I guess, or, or sort of in control. Yeah, I mean, you, you never really know about someone. You know, they they all went to a good school. They all worked at you know other large corporates. Uh, th this guy was newly appointed as CEO. The old CEO had resigned. Um, I mean, look, everyone has a good resume at the start, and yeah. you know, we I talked to the guy. He seemed like a logical person the one time I talked to him, but. Stuff goes bad. Um, I, I, I don't really know. Maybe it was him. Maybe it was a board member doing stuff. You know, I, I don't know who was in charge there. Um, I, you just never really know sometimes, and you know, that's part of the you know the investing thing. Sometimes just stuff is unpredictable and it goes bad. And yeah. in this case, when it went bad, you know, most people would would uh, you know sell. Like it, it's human instinct when a building's on fire, you run away. And I'm one of those guys that runs into the building. <laughs> Like, what's going on in here? What can I, how can yeah, yeah. I change the like, course of what's I, happening? Well, if I see everyone else running out of the building, you know, in, in, it just instinctively I say, well, there's got to be some opportunity. <laughs> let's, let's go poke around. <laughs> you almost sounded like uh, you kind of took on the role of a whistleblower almost, you know, trying to oust the company management and launch a no confidence campaign. Did you, did that come naturally to you or is that, was that a sort of new role for you? Oh, this is a, a one and done. I don't intend to ever do this again. It, I mean, I had a couple hundred conversations uh, over like a two-week period. And I didn't sleep, uh, but I wasn't going to let uh, my money get stolen. Um, you know, I, I, I stay usually pretty far away from politics. I don't like politicians. And just suddenly I, I felt like I was going around kissing all the babies, you know, and, you know, please vote for me. Except it wasn't even vote for me. It was just vote against that asshole. It was just, I don't know, it was a weird thing. And hopefully I, I don't have to do this again. Were you shocked at the level of, if it wasn't criminal or wasn't corruption, at least really questionable activity? Because this was is a publicly traded company, right? Yeah, it's a couple hundred million company in Canada. I, As I said, I've never seen a company sell a profitable division and pay someone to take it away. 
I've seen, you know, companies pay like, oh, we have asbestos liabilities. We're willing to backstop those liabilities to a certain level or, you know, this thing is losing money. We'll, you know, get, we'll put $5 million in and sell it to you for a dollar so that, you know, you, you guys can deal with the employees. We don't want, we don't want to, you know, terminate guys on our watch. It's bad for, uh, I've seen those sort of things. I've never seen someone spend over a hundred million dollars to get rid of a profitable division. I, and then they, they, they tried to sell their largest division, uh, for like, Two times earnings? Like, it made no sense. The guys who ended up buying it off them uh, recapitalized it. They, they, they sold their largest division for like $400 million. And I want to say that they immediately uh, sold a piece of it for $2 billion. Like, it was just insane. Uh, and so I just, I just saw this thing just being picked to pieces. And I just don't know how people can be this dumb. Because, I mean, like, they were in this industry a long time. And I'm kind of a tourist that learned a lot about the industry fast, but I, I couldn't see how they could be making such bad mistakes unless they were getting kickbacks or something. And it makes no sense. Yeah. Were they ever so, investigated? They, they, they should all be in prison. No, I don't think they've ever been investigated. <laughs> That's also shocking, right? If this is presumably- it's Canada. I mean, <laughs> corporate fraud is kind of like what keeps the economy going there. And without <laughs> junior mining, there'd be nothing up north. <laughs> Oh, I apologize to our Canadian viewers, I guess, but... <laughs> I mean it. Let's talk about your third trade. Now, this is one of your best, and this is pivoting the portfolio in March of 2020. So where where were you when we went in... I'm assuming this this is, it revolves around lockdown, but where were you when in March 2020? I mean, what, what was going on with you as we all went into this weird world of lockdown? Well, I was living in Miami back then. I mean, I'd been in Miami 17 years and I had relaunched my hedge fund. And, um, you know, we started uh, seeing stuff in the news in January. You know, everyone was watching Wuhan and everyone kind of was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And me, I started really paying attention to it. And I said, this is going to be bad. And we, we sold a bunch of stuff in January and February, right before the, you know, the U.S. markets collapsed. But I didn't sell enough. Uh, I wish I'd sold a lot more. Uh, you know, I was also too busy stockpiling, uh, have a small condo in South beach and like 20% of the space is still like cans of tuna fish and tomato sauce. And you, you just can't eat all your COVID food. Like, I got, I don't, I don't spend enough time in Miami to consume it all. <laughs> like it's going to be there till the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a time machine. <laughs> It really is. And I don't think canned tuna ever goes bad. It's just the mercury just keeps preserving it. Um, <laughs> but no, no. So anyway, um, we, we saw things going bad and uh, I, I was slow to sell enough stuff. The, you know, thankfully I sold what I did. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it was like this weekend where our, you know, they had a couple of cases in the U.S. and then everything just shut down. And by we were at the point where by the time the U.S. was shutting down, I was less scared. Of, you know, early on, I was like, wow, Chinese guys are just dropping dead in the street. This is scary. By the middle of March, I was basically of the view that this is a bad cold. And I was totally not scared in any way. And I'm just like, why are you why are, we, why are they shutting down? It's 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 a cold. You know, I just don't understand it. Um, and. Uh, I think I was a little slow to pivot, but once I understood what was happening in the U.S., like I never in my wildest dreams thought that you'd take the world's largest economy and shut it down over the cold, over the common cold. And um, but when I realized what was happening and realized what was happening to the economy, and then I saw what uh, the central bank did in, in response, where they just 
printed a bajillion dollars and handed it out to everyone. And you know, the government is like, PPP, no documentation. Here's money. Here's money. Um, I, I just realized the economy was absolutely going to boom. And it, it, when you throw that much money at uh, the economy, where does it go? It goes into stocks and it, it goes into risk assets. And it literally doesn't matter if we're all going to sit home for the next two years. Risk assets going to boom. And um, I, I just realized risk assets were going to boom. And I looked at my book and I said, I don't own risk assets. We owned uh, stuff like tankers, which were doing very well, um, you know, going into COVID. And then I realized, you know, if global oil c- consumption is down, they're not going to do well. They're not going to recover. Uh, we, we owned uh, companies, you know, my biggest position at the time was a company that does a default mortgage servicing, uh, which would have been a great uh, company to own in uh, a recession. But if the government uh, has a, you know, nobody has to pay ban, rent. Yeah, yeah they, they, they announced a moratorium on foreclosures. Well, <laughs> you're not. There's no defaults to service. Like you've got these really expensive lawyers doing nothing, you know. And I went through the portfolio and I tossed these, you know. Like and, and it was painful. Like we own this company, AltaSource. The world, it's the largest default mortgage servicer. Uh, it was a twenty dollars stock in February. It went to six dollars. Uh, the, the day they announced uh, the default mortgage service uh, moratorium, the stock collapsed, and I I sold every share I could in one day. I got out at eleven. I mean. Two years later, it's still at 11. Like, I would have locked up all my capital for no reason. And I, I pivoted really fast into uh, the beneficiaries of money printing. We bought all the, the, the inflation assets and uh, we bought energy. We bought all these things that would do well in an inflationary environment. And I haven't looked back. I mean, if you look at the book I had uh, in February, it, it's up from February of 2020. But it would have been a kind of miserable two and a half years to get to where we are today. And if you look at our book, you know, we're up a lot. Yeah. It's it's funny because timing a move like that is with what so many people struggle with. Because you can always think of, you know, especially with something like that coming at us, you could have made the argument, and many were at that time, they, they just didn't see that the whole world would lock down. I mean, it's just never been done before. So, you know, at some point you've got your, your, your kind of making uh, a bet, I guess. Um, what gives you the confidence? What gave you the confidence to say, right, this is I'm, I'm looking into the future and this is what's going to happen? Because the, the Federal Reserve said uh, we're printing a bajillion dollars and we're giving it to everyone. And they, they said, if that's not enough, we're going to print, print another bajillion dollars and give it to everyone. Like They, they basically said, we stand behind uh, the stock market. I, I wrote this uh, blog post on my blog, Adventures in Capitalism, and I called it Project Zimbabwe. And I, I said that they will print enough money until everything goes straight up. And they won't stop until they've overshot. And it was so obvious then. And so we went and bought, you know, crazy worthless things. We bought like cryptocurrencies and we bought, you know, brokers of cryptocurrencies. We bought crypto miners and we bought, you know, just the the sort of stuff that goes up when you print a ton of money. Um, You know, we bought energy stocks like uh, the price of oil went negative. Uh, Well, what do you think happens to oil production? Like if you you have the staying power to wait it out a couple of months, you're going to make a lot of money. Uh, Like all these things, it was pretty obvious stuff. And we sold what were genuinely good businesses that we thought were going to be, you know, partly impaired by COVID. And there's nothing wrong with the things we sold. And we sold them at, you know, kind of crazy prices, quite honestly. Um, you know, in Q1 of 2020, I was down by half, which as a hedge fund, you're not supposed to really do. But it, it just happens sometimes. And 
Rather than sit there and cry that we're down half, I said, let's realize these losses and put it into things that will get me whole and then get me a lot more. And, you know, by I think it was June or so of 2020, we were flat on the year. We ended up over 100% on the year. And we did the same the year after because we pivoted into inflation stuff. And, uh, you know, what was amazing to me is how many of my friends were, and I think partly this is where you're based. So I'm based in Florida. I mean, by May of 2020, DeSantis basically said COVID doesn't count and you guys go out there and prosper, you know, go out, go to the beach, have fun. And, you know, the guys in New York were kind of, you know, taking the other routes and it was a science experiment effectively. And, you know, I saw friends in New York that are saying we're all staying home and doing nothing. We're buying Peloton and we're shorting stocks. And I'm out there saying you got to go buy reopening stuff because the world's going to reopen. I'm in Florida. It's inevitable. And, yeah. you know, you have this like divergent view and you know, I, I'm amazed how many of my friends lost a fortune on the way down and then shorted on the way up. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm sitting there as levered long as, uh, you know, my, my, my risk uh, taking ability will allow because I just knew it was going up. And so it, it's just, you know, sometimes people see things differently and uh, I'm so happy. I think a younger version of me would have been frozen and said, uh, especially when you have a, you know, it's, it's the second year of my hedge fund, you know, we can't possibly take this loss and admit we made a mistake. You know, a younger version of me would have just sat there and cried about, you know, COVID. And instead I just pivoted and just carried on. And I think it's really important when something goes wrong uh, to uh, adjust as fast as possible. You know, if you're going to panic, panic first, you know, when, when they banned, uh, uh, mortgage moratoriums on my largest position. And it was, you know, it was a $20 stock that opened at 15. I mean, it opened at 15 because in the pre-market, I was already selling, you know, <laughs> I, I said, I'm going to be out by the end of the day. I don't care what the price is. And, you know, I got a 12 uh, average on, on my exit. And, you know, two days later, it's at $6. I felt brilliant. Um, and, and you felt bad first and then you felt brilliant, right? Like you don't like to see, you know, how no, many sound lower, but, but you yeah, knew yeah, that was the right terrible. thing to do. I was more annoyed than anything else. I was saying, this isn't constitutional. And my, a couple of my friends own the shares. They're like, the government can't do this. Like, that's impossible. And I'm saying, yeah, but what are you going to do? You're going to sue them in court. It's going to take two years. And in the end, it was unconstitutional. You know, because you already have Mongolia in your pocket, and you know that you can't fight the, you know, the some of the bigger forces, right? So you better. Well, this one I knew that they would win in court. It was obvious, but you know, this is a company that's going to lose a fortune waiting two years before it, you know, gets spit out of the court. And I just said it's too hard. You know, let, let's go buy the things that go up when you know the Federal Reserve you know, prints money and the government gives everyone a stimmy. Like it, it was just easier that way. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. I'm curious. So when you get something so right on a pivot like that, is it hard to get it right again to get out? Because that's kind of the conversation everyone's having now, right? Like if you, if you got that right, you saw the, you know, that where that wall of money was going to boost risk assets and, you know, you bought for the inflationary period. How do you know when to keep riding it or when to take those winnings and walk away or look for another opportunity? So I, I've been you know, doing this for more than 20 years, and I, I'm, a, I'm a trend investor. I, I do a lot of inflection investing. You get there right at the inflection, and I always sell too soon, but you, you, you kind of learn when it's the seventh or eighth inning and it's time to kind of get off the bus. 
Uh, this is obvious signs, you know, because um, a lot of these things trade on emotion. Like Bitcoin has no logical price. Let's let's talk about Bitcoin, okay? Because I own a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, I bought it at uh, ninety two hundred. Uh, there's a chart pattern. It looked like, you know, it's consolidating. It's going to go up or it's going to go down. If it goes down, I lose 500. If it goes up, let's see what happens. And it just kept going up and up and up. And, you know, it went up a lot. But there's no logical reason why a Bitcoin should be one price versus another. It's just, you know, human emotion and, uh, you know, crowd psychology. And I wake up one day and, you know, I'm very active on Twitter and people are forwarding me. There's, there's a couple of porn stars that are suddenly talking about crypto. And I said, that's a little odd. Like porn stars, like one, like, like they don't talk about finance. Like, and suddenly like, like they're like copying, you know, tweets from friends of mine. And you know, there's this one lady, Mia Khalifa, who's I guess a really famous one. Like she's tweeting nonstop about crypto and she's sitting there in lingerie. And I'm thinking, this is pretty late cycle. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I literally sold a third of my cryptocurrency that, that, that I, sold, I sold a third that day. I was just like, this isn't, this isn't how these cycles work. Like, I'm late here. And, you know, I kind of slept on it for a couple of days. And suddenly there's more porn stars and more. Because I asked my friends, I'm like, is, is this are there other porn stars tweeting about cryptocurrency? They start sending me. It's like, wow, there's a lot of them. <laughs> and so I sold another third. And then uh, a couple of days later, I'm just like, to hell with it about. And I, I sold mine on average about 58,000. You know, it peaked out a few weeks later in the 60s. You know, I was a few thousand off the top and a few weeks too early. And, you know, I have, I have no regrets. Like, I, I knew it was late cycle. It was like, you know, like I, I'm, I'm long energy right now. And when porn stars start tweeting about energy, it's probably <laughs> time to sell. Like, th- th- these are just crowd psychology things. And, you know, they, they talked about this in the 1920s where showgirls were investing in stocks. It's, it's the same thing. And I, I'm not trying to discredit any of these people. I'm sure they've uh, thought through their investments very well, but you know they, they tend to be near the end of uh, the cycle, not the beginning of the cycle. You know, I tend to be the beginning of the cycle. So your fourth trade is less what you're uh, uh, sort of where you're trading, and it, it maybe more how you're trading. And this is one of your best, and that's transitioning from a friends and family fund into one with a much larger capital base, which is interesting. So, what's the motivation behind this? And this is pretty current, right? This is this is something you're going through right now. Yeah, this is a this year thing. <laughs> Love um, it. So, so we, we talked about why I uh, relaunched a fund. Uh, you know, I, I needed more firepower because I don't want to be, ever be a victim. Uh, Amy, I really opened my eyes. Um, and so we raised uh, some money amongst some friends and family, and it was a smallish fund. Uh, we didn't go out market. We didn't really do much of anything. It was me and my gym shorts, and I had a CFO uh, that, was, that was helping out in the back office. Uh, it was a small little operation. And um, about a year ago, we decided to go from being a small friends and family thing to an actual business where, you know, the, the focus is making, you know, uh, you know, money for the, the, the founders as opposed to just uh, playing uh, defense. And so we, we expanded the, the fund's uh, size to, you know, we're going to cap at 250. We're about 180 right now. Uh, but we decided to expand uh, the, the amount of capital we're taking on. We, we hired a good friend of mine to be on the client side. So I, I take a lot less phone calls, which lets me focus more on the investing side. We, we hired uh, three analysts. Uh, we 
uh, launched a data analytics product uh, that is kind of internal to us that uh, helps us identify a lot of these inflections. Uh, it, it's called KEDM, K-E-D-M.com, uh, if you want to go check it out. But it, it, it was mainly a research project for us to systematize what we're doing uh, internally. And, you know, with the analysts, we have the capacity now to take all the, these, these inputs, these, these uh, corporate events, and actually try to find the inflections and understand what's going on. You know, you see a cluster buy from insiders. Well, that, that means they, they, they think something's happening. Well, go figure out what they think is happening, you know, <laughs> like go chase it down. Uh, and so we have a team and I, I, I really think that we will be able to uh, do a lot more and cover a lot more ground than I could do just my, myself. I mean, uh, when I was a one man show, it's just me. And I want to be able to do much more in-depth research. I want to be able to cover more sectors. I want to be faster on the inflections. You know, when you show up and you're the first inning of an inflection, you're taking almost no risk. Uh, the uh, expectations are so low that if it doesn't inflect, you get your money back. You know, it's just the street has no expectation. The, the street expects bad things to continue because they've been going on for 10 years. Uh, by the time you get there in the third inning of the inflection, the street has some expectations. If it doesn't work, it's going to cost you money. Uh, I want to get there faster and uh, smarter and you know, choose the right way to play it. And that's why I built a team around me to really grow what we're doing. And it, it's, it's early days. And unfortunately, we got hit by a hurricane like right after we started the process. But I, I feel like it's really uh, making uh, strides and you know, it's going to make us unstoppable in the next few years. It's interesting, having been in the business this long, uh, a lot of other people I talk to are looking to sort of pedal back from size, from responsibility, from having to address clients. And you're moving, you're running in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just think there's an opportunity to cover more ground. And, you know, you need more AUM to uh, afford all these people, obviously. Uh, so, you know, we're, but we're not looking to be a multi-billion dollar fund or anything. We're going to cap at 250. I think that leaves us very, very nimble. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think you can cover more ground. You know, you know how many times uh, I look at something and I'm just like, I can't possibly learn about this sector. By the time, you know, I, I have five days, you know, it, it's going up 5% a day. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you just got to commit capital and then figure it out later. And that's not a good way to invest. Uh, you know, pattern recognition is something I'm really good at. So I'm okay with committing the capital and then figuring it out later, but it's not the right way to invest. You should have figured it out three months ago. And so having this team lets us go down rabbit holes and really understand things fast and have a built up a repository of knowledge. You know, sometimes these inflections are like with COVID came out of the blue, uh, central banks around the world did something that was totally uh, unheard of in history. And now there's going to be after effects for decades. <laughs> but, um, oftentimes these inflections are pretty obvious. I think, you know, you have sectors that have been miserable and they get less miserable and less miserable and then they start going good. And, you know, we have a good inventory of stuff we're researching now for 2023 and, an and like a shadow inventory of things we think will inflect in 2024. And that's how you have to be as an inflection investor. Now, I tend to be uh, four to eight themes, uh, but, you know, you might have 20 themes in your quiver and you're just waiting for the right one to express itself. And, you know, why not have 100 themes in your quiver? That, that, that way you don't miss stuff and you, you have more flexibility. But, uh, you know, things don't inflect and we still have to spend all the hours following them. And so now I have people to help with that. So what keeps you so motivated? What keeps you in the game? Uh, just 
big, big jigsaw puzzle and the pieces never fit. And I just find it fascinating, honestly. It's, it's not really the money. I, I, mean, I don't spend money. It's not because it's not I'm cheap. I just have nothing I want to buy. Um, it's, 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 it's really just I want to have the best numbers. I want to you know, be able to talk to my friends and say, look, we, we did a thousand bips more than you. Uh, you know, and, you know my, my friends are all bragging that they have bigger funds or you know, they, they bought a bigger house. Or something. I, I just want to have the best uh, numbers. And you know, I, look, w- w- when the day is done, I usually go out drinking with my friends. And also, that's all I want to talk about is stocks. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to win the chess game? Do yeah. you want to beat everybody in chess? Yeah, but now I don't need the five bucks. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> Just the bragging rights. What what advice would you give to others? I think especially people who um, maybe are newer to it, you know, whether they're doing this for a living or whether they're just trying to, you know, grow their own wealth. Um, it's been kind of an interesting time if you don't have some of the experience, you know, that you have. What, what, what advice would you give people? I mean, be super skeptical. Uh, take nothing for granted. Uh, assume that everyone's lying to you and read a ton. Uh, these cycles all repeat. You know, there's uh, 300 years of reasonably well-recorded financial history. Financial history is really just the mistakes of others. You know, it's, it's often politicians having short-term goals due to uh, political cycles, you know, whether it's election cycles or succession cycles. And, you know, they have short-term goals that often are self-goals that have nothing to do with the well-being of their countries. And there are often after effects of these uh, goals. You know, if, if a politician wants to do one thing, uh, it'll lead to some other cause and effect. And you know, I like to joke that we have a two-year election cycle in America and my timelines are just different. <laughs> and as a result, I, I mostly just watch politicians make mistakes. And then I sit around with my friends and said, you know, that guy just made an unforced error. Who's going to benefit? Who's going to lose? And we just try to figure it all out. And... No, if you get the trends right, it almost doesn't even matter which you know, stocks you buy. If you get the, if you buy the right stock, but you get the trend wrong, like you're going to get murdered. So get the trend right. And that, that, that's really the most important thing. I mean, you know, I, I keep talking about this energy crisis, but, um, and I know this is probably not the topic of your show, but I just want to stress it. If, if Western leaders are insistent on causing an energy crisis, I think they'll succeed beyond their wildest dreams. And, uh, if you ban uh, uh, exploration and production of uh, hydrocarbons, yet you have no replacement because the green economy is in its infancy and you have a 20-year gap between the green economy gets to where it needs to be, if it ever even gets there, well, you can't just go to uh, the global population and say, well, you're going to have to sit out for 30 years while we figure this all out. Like, there's going to be an energy crisis. <laughs> I think they're going to succeed beyond their wildest dreams. And, you know, that's the big trend this decade. And, you know, if you see the big trend, everything else has to somehow latch onto that trend unless something tells you the trend is changing. And that's just kind of how I, you know, focus on everything. Find the trend and ride the trend and don't get off until, you know, the porn stars show up. Cubby, it's been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. (laughs) I'm sure you'll edit this one good. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's not coming out. I guarantee you. (laughs) Not only is it not coming out, there's a t-shirt with that on it, for sure. (laughs) Great, great. (laughs) All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. 
For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four.